Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Putting It Together, episode 201. This is the second part in our little retrospective to celebrate having reached 200 episodes. So thanks for joining me. How are you? Wasn't last week fun? If you haven't had a listen to it, please do. I've had a lot of lovely comments about it, and it was so fun for me to, to go back through some of those great episodes and just find some cool moments. And big thanks to Aaron, our producer, who sought those moments out. Um, those were actually his choices and that was more interesting to me because anytime we've done an episode like that before it's always been you know I've always kind of been in charge of everything so it was nice to just say to Aaron you pick some stuff um I I believe I picked which episodes and Adam picked the clips and that was so nice to get the list back and then look through them and um have a chance to just revisit some of those moments um, so this week we're doing a similar thing, but we're doing it with the Shedcast series, which we did around August last year. Um, so people that were involved in Shedinburgh Fringe Festival, which was initiated by Gary McNair and Francesca Moody Productions, amongst others. Um, it's supported by the Traverse and the Soho. Um, some amazing, some amazing acts were on in that. And you can go back and listen to the full episodes. We did a sort of 20 minute to half hour episode every day of that festival um, with a guest who, who was doing the show that day or had done the show the night before, I think it was. Um, so there was a sort of tie in with every uh, performance of a little podcast that, t- that t- took us behind the scenes of that performance and told us a wee bit about it and stuff like that. So, yes, um, you can go back and listen to the, the full things and there there's maybe... 20 or something of them and some amazing guests and some that we couldn't feature just because of time um so i've made a selection and i'm really pleased to uh, to bring them to you just about five minutes of each guest or thereabouts um little a little sense of what they talked about and to hear both literally and artistically to hear their voice um so yeah it's been a real delight and also this is just my geek side but the recording um, set up for most of these. Um, I think all of them actually that we're going to hear today, but particularly the ones towards the beginning, which we recorded in person um, at the Traverse, the setup was really excellent and I was really pleased with how it sounded. So that's one of the things that makes me really happy about this. Um, so yeah, I'm going to start now with uh, Chris Thorpe, who brought his show Status to the Shedinburgh Fringe Festival last year. Um, it had previously won a Fringe first. So um, a highly lauded show and, and a really brilliant one as well. And he has, again, to go back to the voice, artistically and literally, a great voice, a really nice voice to listen to in both senses. So it's a pleasure to talk to Chris and to hear a bit about, not so much about his process in this clip, but a little bit about the ideas of identity and nationality that drove him to to present this piece um and a little bit about that sense of who is the person performing versus the character is that person on stage a character you know if we're not if we're not actually playing a character if in his example you know the guy in the show is chris so it is him um and kind of the dilemma that that poses it's really interesting stuff so yes i'm not going to keep you and i'm not going to um overshadow no 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 foreshadow i suppose um each clip too much because they're very short and they do speak for themselves so after this one <laughs> I'll, I'll let them run a little bit and uh, i'll just keep you i'll guide you through a little bit but not too much um and i suppose that'll make it a slightly shorter episode i just want these clips to speak for themselves because they're so wonderful anyway here we go it's me and chris thorpe and we are putting it together
this show that you're doing for us today, Space Jam, hmm. was at the Fringe before? Yeah, it was, it was at the Fringe two years ago. So it's the Fringe first winner. Yeah, it ah. did. It it, uh, it 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 won a Fringe first in 2018 when it was first on. I did the full month here. I was in the um, the big room at Summer Hall. Oh, nice. Um, which was great. And then it came back last year as part of the British Council Showcase. I I came and I did I think nine or ten shows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. later on in the festival. So tell us a bit about Status then. It's a show that came out of. Um, I want to say it's a show that came out of Brexit, but that's actually not true. And I actually specifically say that it's not a Brexit show. I saw that in, in the trailer. The show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it certainly came out of the same things that Brexit is an offshoot of mm-hmm. as well. And a lot of other conversations around the world in a lot of other places about who we are, how we relate to our history, um, what our kind of seemingly arbitrary sense of national identity in some ways is the effect it can have, the kind of relative levels of privilege it confers on you depending on um, who you are as an individual. Mm. Uh, so I was thinking about that a, a lot, and I guess it was in the run-up to the Brexit vote when I started thinking about the show, there was a re-emergence of a, a conversation about British values. I was hearing... Mm. Um, British values a lot as a phrase in a way that I hadn't for for quite a while, uh, and I guess that's where it came from. Because I am I allowed to swear in this? Mm-hmm. I mean, my immediate reaction to hearing the phrase British values is what the fuck are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it means a different thing to me as a kind of white British person with all the you know as I travel. A, around the world which I'm lucky enough to do with all the privilege that that passport confers on me and where it meets the privilege of like who I am yeah yeah I am a an outgrowth of whatever those British values are but also I don't there is nothing that forces me to participate in that conversation so if I feel uncomfortable when people talk about British values if I feel that essentially that's narrowing the idea of what it means to be from Britain mm-hmm, yeah. and making it more dangerous uh, for other people. I don't really have to participate in that. So the show, which now I realise I'm presenting as kind of a, a lot more serious than it is, but it came out of that idea of forcing myself to actually think about those things that I don't have to think about. Yeah. So it's a show about someone who, you know, his reaction to that, someone called Chris who is me but mm, yeah, there's a very interesting thing in a show about like I'm not I'm not really comfortable with being this guy but I am this guy who's discomfort with the idea of having to talk about what it means to have a nationality kind of drives him to try and escape that like psychologically and literally so, so there is an imagined narrative then although you are kind of there and it's you it's an imagined narrative in the sense that the show's the story of a journey. It's one of those classic kind yeah. of, you know, it pretends to be one of those classic guy goes on a journey shows. Right, like the 12 stages of the hero's journey. Yeah, of, uh, it's not, um, you know, it's not that sort of classically structured. Mm-hmm, yeah. But the journey itself is invented. The journey itself is that like, unlikely and has elements of like magic sure. in it. Okay. But at the same time, everything on that journey even if the story 
that is being told to me or the thing that I am going through is happening in an impossible way. Um, everything is true and everything is based on something that I did. I did a lot of research around this show. I spoke to people all over the world about how they feel their sense of nationality. And if it's not tied to a specific country, like a country that the world allows to exist, yeah, yeah. Um, what is it tied to? How does it constitute you? And it's more about the sense of uh, what you are comfortable with belonging to and being seen as so I spoke to you know people from New Zealand to Nigeria to uh, you know people I met in Germany who had traveled there from Syria in that big wave of sort of migration a few mm -hmm. years ago um, across Europe um, a lot of people in places in the UK like places like where I'm from uh, where people would have voted a different way to me in the Brexit referendum mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, about why and how their sense of Britishness played into that and uh, to people who had a sense of belonging to a nation that actually isn't recognised by the world as a nation. And all of the um, stories that I was told are influenced the show and some of them are very explicitly in the show. Yeah. So even though the journey's made up and it's that sort of magical realist kind of thing, I'm a bit suspicious of that phrase, but it's been used a lot about the show, and I think fair enough. It's kind of all the rage as well. Is it? Yeah. So I've been accidentally, I've been accidentally fashionable as well, which is always... <laughs> That's but, the only way I've ever been fashionable Yeah, too. no, same here. Um, Well, obviously, over lockdown, we found out that Ellen wasn't as nice as we thought she was. I always thought she was a bit mean. I, th I think you can see that there was a bit of meanness behind her oh, eyes. Did you get that sense already? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I strongly disliked her. Okay. Um, I had nothing to quantify it. It was just a vibe that I got. Sometimes that's all you need, mate. Do you? Like, I feel like that that's a bit of sort of like... um. In terms of getting people cancelled, it's a bit like McCarthyism, isn't it? It's just like yeah, I'm not I don't like cancelled, but like often I've found out that someone was a bit of a dick to someone else, and I'm like, I kind of always had a funny feeling about that person. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean I would cancel them, <laughs> but like <laughs> well, I that's kind of new. We have that power now, but I, you know, you are so right. Like you can just get an energy off people sometimes, can't you? Definitely. So you felt that you knew that about Ellen before. <laughs> I, I did feel like I, that I knew that about Ellen. Let's say I wasn't surprised yeah. when it came out that she wasn't very good to her backstage people. Mm -hmm. But then what I've basically thought is she is our queer overlord. There is now a power vacuum in the queer community that needs to be filled. And I would like to take the place of Ellen as both chat show host and sort of like her cultural status. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, my show is basically like an audition to be the new Ellen. That's, well, it's a good place to start, I feel. Strong. What, in a shed? Well, no, just with, with such a clear idea of what you're trying to do, regardless of whether you're in a shed or not. It's a really clear, um, what's the word, ambition, I suppose. Well, the funny thing is, is that when they these guys approach me like, do you want to do something in the shed? I was kind of thinking, should I just do some normal stand-up? Mm -hmm. But then isn't that just going to be a bit strange, someone stood in a shed just doing their normal show. So I wanted there to be sort of a reason for me to be in the shed. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that reason could be that I'm turning sort of this man cave into my audition. 
it's it's tenuous. It's te- it's very tenuous. I'll admit that. That's all right. I mean, I don't think the shed is like too specific to a lot of people's work. I think it's just where it happens, you know. So it's just cool to find you there. So do you normally do a lot of stand up work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so stand up is sort of my is my primary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that's been quite difficult over lockdown because when we sort of started to realize that lockdown was something that was going to happen there was a week where each day like more and more work would be dropping out of your diary and it felt quite sort of apocalyptic oh yeah um and it was very very disappointing um so yeah it's just been crazy like having no performance and every little bit of performance i do now that we're sort of easing back into it, i get such a rush off it because because you haven't had that feeling for so long oh yeah totally it's heightened isn't it yeah yeah so what's your kind of experience at the fringe then do you normally do do you bring like a new hour every year every couple of years so i've been doing stand-up for about five years and i've been to the fringe every year um during that period mm-hmm. um so i started off with like a triple hander so i just did 20 minutes with two other comics yeah then i did like a mix bill the year after that um oh so four years i've been been going to the fringe sorry um after the mixed bill i did the pleasance reserve the last year i did a split hour with my friend sam and then this year i was going to do my hour-long debut oh right it it kind of felt like the four years prior to this were like it's a bit like marathon training sort of building up year on year until you do your big main hour and sort of announce yourself as a stand-up and artist Mm -hmm. on on the big on the big scene so have you done the hour at all then so I was I was doing work in progresses of the hour yeah. right up until lockdown. So wow. I started writing the show last September. Um, and then I just kind of, I've put it down since and not really picked it back up. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess we're not really sure what state the Edinburgh Fringe is going to be in next year. So I think, again, what will happen is September, I'll pick the show up again and it will probably turn into something very different because I think we're all we're all hugely changed by what's happened over the last six months. Of course, how could you not? acknowledge that in any work going forward exactly and it, it it's not even like acknowledging it in like a very like straightforward way of like coronavirus guys what about that it's, <laughs> yeah, more, yeah, yeah. it's more like an existential thing like i feel like such a different i have such a different attitude to the world and sort of my part in it now that mm. i would feel like i was lying if i just went back to you know yeah, of doing course, the jokes yeah. i was doing before yeah, it doesn't have to be like, save, what, what's the deal with coronavirus? <laughs> hey guys, did you hear about this pandemic? <laughs> and I'm sure there'll be plenty of stand-up based on that, so no worries there. What were you like? Chloe Pets, amazing, amazing comic and uh, a great, again, a great voice in both senses. So we started out with uh, Chris Thorpe telling us a little bit about his show status and a, a little bit about how it came about and so on. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree it's fascinating stuff. And he's he's an, a great performer, a great performer, and one of those people who can speak about his work just about as well as he can perform it, which isn't always the case and isn't always necessary. But um, he does speak with eloquence. And Chloe, a very funny human. Um, it was you know it's a chance actually to to meet a bunch of people that I didn't know, see the work of people that I'd never heard of in some cases, um, and then have a proper chat to them, which was great. I mean, Chloe and I didn't meet in person because she was down at the Soho, um, 
you probably heard in the background there a wee bit of carry on around the dressing rooms, people getting ready and stuff happening, which I suppose adds a, an extra dimension. Um, if you're into that type of thing, I, I prefer silence in the background myself, personally. You know what I'm like, I'm a wee bit obsessive about the sound being good. But anyway, anyway, great to have uh, a wee look back at a couple of those clips. So now I'm going to bring you on to something completely different, in fact, as Monty Python used to say. Uh, Adam Kashmiri talks about his own work and his own experience in his piece, Adam which has had great success and uh, during lockdown was actually uh, made into a sort of filmed version as well. Um, so it's it's had many iterations and uh, the iteration that we saw as part of Shedinburgh was a, a solo because most of the, the work was um, a version of it, you know, a shortened version, I suppose. I, I mean, I don't know if you would say it was shortened, but it was scaled down. Um, and yeah, it was it was cool to see it in, in a completely different version from how it's been before and to talk to Adam just a little bit about his experience and uh, pick his brain a little bit about the whole process and about life in general. So here we go. It's me and Adam Kashmiri and we are putting it together. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that is that is true. I came here when I was 19. And, uh, yeah, I think it's You live in Glasgow? Yeah, I do. I've always lived in Glasgow since I came to Britain. So, um, I know. I love it. I mean, uh, I had a crazy idea of moving down to London last year, but God, I only spent like three months and I came back up here. I was like, no, Glasgow, Scotland is calling me, you know? Um, yeah, man. And yeah, it, it really did miss it. It's just, it's my home now. This yeah. is the only way I would I would describe it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, I, I couldn't help but think when I was watching, particularly the beginning, you mustn't have had any experience with trans life trans people growing up i mean any yeah. knowledge of it even be existing is that true yeah that is very true so growing up um i mean in egypt we, we uh, back then like before i left we knew about lesbians and we knew about gay people but mm -hmm. being trans or transgender anything non-binary of course any of that it just doesn't exist so growing up feeling like you know as you would see in the, in the piece i thought i was a lesbian at the start and uh but i was like but that doesn't make sense to me because i i don't feel like a woman to begin with sure yeah. so i came <laughs> i made peace with the idea that i was I had the soul of a man in a woman's body about the age of 17, but I had no idea that what I felt was actually exist and it's true and there's like billions right. of people like me. I didn't know. I just thought I was the only guy in the world that had this soul of a man in a woman's body. So you managed to conceptualize it. Literally. And yet with no other example of it. Exactly that, literally. And that's why when I finally was a really dark moment in my life, and I don't know why it never crossed my mind, maybe when I was 17, to say, you know, can the soul of a man be, be trapped in the body of a woman? It just never crossed my mind to type that on a computer. It just seemed ridiculous. Like, what? Of course, how can a soul be trapped? I might be the only one. I might be crazy. Yeah, it seems more fantastical or magical, even the way you put it, the soul. Yeah, well, well, this is how it felt like, you know, you look in the mirror and you just can't see yourself. It, so what else can it be? And you think, well, it's maybe my soul then. It's, yeah. it's my spirit that I feel because when I look in the mirror, there's nothing that matches how I feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and so, I mean, in a way, <laughs> this is really weird. So what happened to me in Egypt and what made me left 
what made me leave was incredibly hard and dark at the time. But in a way, it was a blessing in disguise because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been in that low moment that made me Google that question, can the yeah. soul of a man be trapped in a woman's body? And voila, things came up and I got this validation, I'm real. You know, and yeah. of course things were hard, but it didn't seem it mattered at that time. I had a goal, a new goal. I had a destiny now, I'm real, I can be me. This is all I'm gonna focus on now. Do you know what I mean? Of course. So no matter how hard it is, yeah, it's real. It's real, exactly. I can I can chase a uh, chase something now. Yeah. This it's not illusion. It's not me crazy. No, billions are like me. I can mm. I can be me. You know for sure. Yeah. And was your uh, apart from the the trans issue, was your upbringing artistic in any way? Did you have any idea of the, this way of telling stories? Uh, no, my <laughs> my I have no artists in the family whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was never really um, interested in the arts, but then again, I was never really interested in anything. I was just having a really hell of a time in Egypt, yeah. trying to figure out what what is it that I am, how can I survive, what is it to do. So I never really like I, I went like I was accepted to uni, like commerce and stuff, but I never e- even went. I was telling my mom that I was going every day, but I never really went to uni. Right, I never okay. attended any lectures, just education, um, career skills hobbies it's just didn't i didn't have that i was just too busy worrying about what i was yeah and it just all got developed in here i think um i think cora brought that out in me um really yeah absolutely yeah she she really brought out that out in me and um encouraged me to just yeah it taught me so many things encouraged me to just do whatever i want to do because i was incredibly shy and yeah. yeah, I would really, I really owe it all to Cora, to be honest with you. She really um, helped me start this wonderful journey. So where, tell us about that. Where did it first start? You met Cora, you had an idea, to, you wanted to tell the story. I mean, how did it happen? So it was actually quite a coincidence. So back in 2012, just right after I was granted asylum, like my refugee status, mm-hmm. I went to Scottish Refugee Council because I, you know, I need to learn what, what I need to do, how to find a job now because I'm allowed to work now that I've got my refugee status. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was some, someone there that worked and suggested something to go and see and it was called Here We Stay. It was like a collaboration uh, between the Scottish Refugee Council and Citizens Theatre. Ah. Um, so I went, you know, I went there. It was voluntary position, community theatre kind of thing. I never like uh, been in theatre before, ever. Not even in Egypt. Um, so never mind even in Scotland. I was very excited. Uh, met with everyone there, and slowly but surely, I started to write something about my life. But it was more like a monologue, five, six minutes monologue, just yeah, simple things, saying the highlights of what happened to my life. But <laughs> little did I know, um, Cora was premiering her show, Glasgow Girls. Um, and, you know, the night we, we were premiering our re-show, uh, she was premiering Glasgow Girls. So she came and saw our, our piece, oh. our very humble piece. <laughs> and uh, after, you know, after the performance, Cora, you know, came and spoke to me and like, she was really touched by the story. And um, if I remember correctly, she said it really spoke to her heart. She felt like she wanted to do something for the trans community. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I got really interested because I was offered to do documentary films before and I refused. Just The idea of just doing a story about me and just me for me, it just really doesn't appeal to me that much. But Cora, Cora was more about 
the trans community. We want to tell the story of the trans community. It's, you know, it was bigger than me. It wasn't sure. just me. They were, you know, she wanted to use me as a face to the community. Mm-hmm. That really appealed to me. So we always started talking. Uh, and to some degree, yeah, swimming in similar waters to the makers whose work I had so admired. Yeah, yeah. And then you've gone on to write other pieces that are from the perspective of characters in well-known plays. Oh, well, that's a, that's a strand of my work um, for young audiences. Uh, the, the I Shakespeare, they're called generically. They are, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, five of those. And I've just done the last one. I, uh, the Sin of the Poet from Julius Caesar. I, I, I wrote him ages ago in 2012, and that was for the RSC. And then the Unicorn Theatre invited me to do him again, and I made the decision to perform him. I didn't perform him in 2012. Ah. Uh, so, yeah, those plays have been joys to me. Uh, they, they riff on minor characters in Shakespeare's plays. They, are, they, are, they sit in a sort of parallel line with the... If I say the adult work, it sounds like it's sort of porn. I don't mean that. I mean the work. <laughs> That's for, the airline show we were on. <laughs> yeah, it was the work for adult audiences. Um, yeah, but often in the young people's work, I can there's a there, there can be a similar level of kind of complexity and um, c- conceptual playfulness in a way. Uh, yeah. Often I'm I'm writing those plays at the same time as writing the more grown up stuff, and they they inform both those tracks inform each other. Um, yeah 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 but there is a sort of core of the of the grown-up kind of um well if i use the word conceptual i hope it doesn't make it sound too dry uh but conceptual work from an oak well not my arm then led to an oak tree which is the piece that has an actor in it who doesn't know the play Mm -hmm. this is also partly my attempt to gain the confidence to bring people into my work really so an oak tree is great because i only ever need to contract someone for a couple of hours Right. Uh, the second actor kind of meets me an hour before the show and the show is about an hour and 15 minutes long. Uh, yeah. And then I grew confident enough to, yeah, to offer a, a, another play of mine called England. Um, all these plays that opened in Edinburgh. Uh, My Arm opened in 2003, An Oak Tree in 2005, England opened in 2007. And then I did a play called The Author in 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, and, and, and they they are, and then an Adler and Gibb after that, and then a play I did last year called Total Immediate Collective Imminent Terrestrial Salvation, and then um, and then I'm working on another play at the moment, and it feels like that's the core, and then on either side of that core, there are work for young people, uh, shorter pieces, mm-hmm. uh, sketches, things like that, uh, but the core is... Um, yeah, it, it, it's those works for adults uh, and the young people's work feeds off it and feeds it. Um, yeah. and, and it has a nice sort of playful sort of dance with that kind of, with the, the more grown up work. Yeah. And do you teach mm. as well? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I do. I've just recently, I mean, I, I'm now teaching on um, Zoom. I've just, uh, I did a 24 hour uh workshop that was due to be done in the real world in spain a 24 then, hour yeah workshop. so so six four-hour sessions all right i thought um, you meant like no 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 not workshop. non-stop no my god we'd all be killing each other <laughs> no know. but I, I work with a group of people over a week for 24 hours oh i see um and that was kind of like oh that was it was great actually uh and i'm about to do um 
uh, what's called an Arvon, uh, an Arvon writing course. Uh, Arvon is a sort of residential series of residential centers around the country. Mm-hmm. And I have done quite a few of those where you go and people come and, and I would work with a co-tutor and we will teach and tutor. And I'm doing one of those with a theater maker called Caroline Horton. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm doing that on the week of September the 14th. But again, we're going to be doing that in our own homes. Yeah, like on, everything. Though, <laughs> like everything, yeah. yeah. Which is a tragedy for Arvon, because Arvon is about, there are houses in um, Yorkshire, in uh, in South Devon, uh, in the most beautiful locations. Oh, yeah. And the participants all share in the cooking and the food is fantastic. Mm. Uh, and none of that will be happening um, when we do Arvon uh, on my laptop. So something is lost. Yeah, you're right. A sort of a, a realness or there's a human element, isn't there, that's lost in those cases? Yeah, the, the more interesting things are often in the spaces uh, yeah. and, and live space is certainly, I think, more interesting than digital space. And there's every chance that you'd be sitting around eating your uh, meatballs and whatever, and then then the idea would get you know come well, clear yeah, or something. Yeah, and it's the notion of community that you get in those in those locations uh, in those centres that yeah. you don't really get. You try to, you get something, but not the real deal. No, I mean space is super important. Well, what a treat. It was a treat back then, and it's a treat now to listen to Adam Kashmiri and Tim Crouch and everyone else that, that I've brought into this programme. Um, it's really fascinating stuff, just from all different angles and directions. Adam's conversation about how he knew that he was trans, but he didn't know what that was or had, didn't know that anyone else was. Um, just amazing. And that, you know, and that he didn't want everything to be about him but but Cora asked him to be a voice for a community. Um, great, beautifully articulated. And what can you say about Tim Crouch? I mean, doesn't Tim just make you want to do stuff? Doesn't he just inspire you? The way he speaks, um, the sort of his his approach to work, and also I suppose that it feels like there's such gravity with Tim. There's a sort of a gravity, you know. There's a lightness of touch, and he's very funny, but also this kind of this feeling of yeah, this is this is really important. It's a reminder that what we're doing is important and worthwhile. Great to, to listen back to that stuff. And Tim is just, yeah, a great inspiration. Um, so it's worth going back and listening to the full episodes because these are sort of five-minute clips, like I say, and each episode is 20 to 30 minutes. So there's lots of meat on those bones. Now I'd like to go over to Casey J. Andrews, who uh, gave a beautiful performance as part of uh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival quite early in the festival. We were all still finding our feet and uh, figuring out how we were going to do this thing. And I was getting to watch a new thing every day and speak to a new guest every day. And even that was still all new. And I was trying to figure out uh, an energy, but also literally, uh, logically, a a schedule for that, how I was going to make that work. So let's hear a wee bit from Casey J. Andrews about her uh, time at the Shedinburgh Fringe and about her uh, show that she presented. Uh, And then a little clip from a star guest at the end which i won't reveal to you just yet that you can enjoy to take us out so here we go we'll start with casey j andrews and me and we are putting it together (music) 
it was all so poignant that I didn't want to bastardise it at all. I just wanted to use their exact words. Sure. So we're listening to them. We're gathered around a table. We're looking at photographs, basically their photo album of all of their different lives and stories and the things that they've done. Um, and I think that intimacy for camera is probably, hopefully, going to translate well. Yeah, I mean, you're probably <laughs> in a, a fairly uniquely privileged position to have made it for a shed <laughs> and for a small audience for an intimate audience yeah but you but i suppose if you're doing it live you it does give you a lot of extra work doesn't it mm. if you if you can only fit five people in at a time yeah. <laughs> assuming people want to see it then you're gonna have to work pretty hard yeah well and it, and it's quite i always wonder i think it must be quite an um it's quite an exposing experience i suppose as an audience member as well oh, yeah, because you yeah. can't just sit back in the darkness and um react and to the show however w without anyone else seeing you you're you're sat opposite other audience members who are inevitably slightly lit yeah um and it's quite a uh it's a show that a lot of people connect to emotionally it's about breast cancer mm -hmm. but um broadly it's about it's about connections and family and any kind of loss or grief so even if you know people haven't been affected by cancer or breast cancer um i've i've not met anyone who's come through to see the show who's not been affected in one way or another by by grief of course, um, yeah, yeah. and losing loved ones so yeah i i do i i wonder sometimes but i i do warn people if people are going through our, uh, a difficult time i've had friends who've maybe lost family recently and they've said oh i want to come and see it. i said just I don't make sure. Yeah, trigger <laughs> make, warning. Yeah, make sure that you're that you're you're okay to come and see it, especially if it when it was in the really intimate setting, because because um, yeah, I thought, I, as an audience member, I'd, I'd maybe I'd find it quite a lot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, is it a way for you to process things that have happened in your life? Is that is that what it's about? Partly, uh, I don't really. I don't like to see. Um, I don't like to make theatre as a way to as therapy for myself sure. okay i think that's important but um it has it it all happened actually unexpectedly when i was making the show a lot of things happened and so it did become a part of the process of writing it while i was mm -hmm. writing the show um one of the women that i interviewed was my auntie karen and um and just before I interviewed her, because I'd been sort of planning it for a while, and it was always, I was always going to go ahead. My my family, um, uh, breast cancer runs in the family. My mum and all of her sisters, all four of them, they've all got breast cancer. I thought, wow. well, I'll write about what I know about. This yep. has been a part of my life for a long time. I know some other really incredible women um, who've also had breast cancer who I'd be really interested to talk to. So some of my old my my old drama teacher from school, for example, and my old singing teacher. Oh, I want to talk to them because they, they, you know, they've got stories that are worth listening to, and um, and this has always been it had always been in the pipeline, and then when I set about making it, um, my auntie's cancer progressed for the first time in years, and so suddenly, my my mum was was. I was living at my parents' house at the time. My mum was dealing with that, receiving that news. One day when I got home from sending out press releases, I oh, got okay. home and she told me that. And then a couple of weeks before um, the very first show in Edinburgh in 2018, I found out that Emma, um, who was my drama teacher, um, 
well, first of all, I found out that her treatment had stopped working and then she had a couple of weeks to live. And then about two weeks before the festival, she died. Oh, my word. Um, so she never got to see the show. But her story is, um, well, when you see it, her story is, it's, that's kind of the story that set off the spark of, of wanting to do a show about mothers and daughters and breast cancer. Because when, um, when I was at school, um, she was just beginning to, to start um, this idea of traveling around with her daughter, Molly. Um, and so when Molly was, uh, well, when Molly was 11 years old, they... So you're about to you're about to walk on and do a play that you've never seen, never read, and know nothing about. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. <laughs> How did you get roped into this? I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> it suddenly seems like a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> is it? It must be nerve wracking, though. Yes, it is a bit. Um, uh, yeah, because obviously you have sort of no. Yeah, you have no chance to kind of uh, prepare or anything. So um, there's a bit of deep breathing going on. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it feels, uh, I mean, it's exciting to be in a theatre, in a dressing room again for the first time in a long time. Of course, And yeah. um, the idea of, you know, there'll be a small audience in there. And so just to be in a, in a, in a theatre and have a little audience, that will be really exciting. Yeah, even just that. I mean, I found that mm. I was doing the podcasts at the Traverse when at the beginning of the festival and just to be in the building you know yeah to be around it and be yeah, around people and collaborate in some way um you've done a lot of theatre work over the years yeah yes I have done yeah a lot um yeah it's still my kind of first love I think and um right. yeah um and I've really missed it I mean I also just missed it as a, a punter you know I oh for sure I, you yeah. know I go I go and see a lot of theatre and so, yeah, it's always been a big part of my life. And so, yeah, it's, it's been very strange not having that outlet. Yeah, I, f I feel exactly the same. I mm. think even even going to see something that I don't like, I would take that. Yes. You know, and just sit in the bar and, and talk about how awful it was would be better than <laughs> going know, to see nothing. One of the great pleasures, completely oh, trashing a play, going, that's just terrible. How could anyone <laughs> think that that was a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> that, have you kept working through lockdown? I mean, you, you do a lot of TV work now, obviously. Um, I mean, sort of um, bits of ADR and stuff um, well, course, for yeah. stuff I had shot. Um, I would just finished shooting season four of The Crown just before yeah. lockdown. So I wasn't doing, specifically working, but sort of doing the kind of ancillary stuff around it a bit. Sure, but not yeah. a lot, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, it's been a kind of enforced enforced stop. Of course. Now, playing, playing Prince Philip, that's a bit of an ask, isn't it? It is a bit of an ask, yeah. Did um, you go through a lot of um, kind of uh, research and things like that? Yeah, I mean, a fair amount. Did a fair amount of reading. Mm -hmm. um, but also a lot of, um, in a way, it's quite a technical challenge, you know, because obviously everyone knows how he sounds. It's so specific, isn't it's it? It's so specific, and so yeah. the, the voice is a big part of it. But yeah. It, yeah, that's also a kind of delicate thing to pitch because... If it's too much an act of mimicry, I think that becomes irritating to listen to over, you know, several hours of TV. So, yeah, yeah, you got you got to get close, but also, yeah, not be all about the the accent. So you kind of want to sort of be able to go through that and then sort of, in a way, meet the person. Of course, um, but he's really a very pretty interesting human being. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, so yeah. Th- there's a lot to there's a lot to dig into. But I think that's what the crown does really well is is kind of you know the casting is superb, but we just mm-hmm. we forget that that's happening, and we're not thinking. It's not like watching Harry Enfield or something after a few minutes. Exactly, we're into the characters. Yeah, it's really really important that um, because I think Peter writes um, what he writes is um, like a quite a a considered meditation on on, on them all. It doesn't take a particular political um, position. No, it's I a think, human. It's, it's a human aspect, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's relatively benign to it, so it's not looking to trip uh, the institution up or criticize it hugely. But yeah. it is um, taking the space to uh, consider that role and that organization and that family with some kind of um, what is it? Just yeah, due consideration, I think. Take it seriously, I suppose. And often it's either satirized or it's ridiculed or it's uh, you know yeah, or yeah, torn it's down. or it's sort of deified as you know being you know and very very few things kind of just just look at it kind of flat on you know. And, yeah. And for that, I think it's um, that's one of the things I really like about the show. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, had you any idea when you were growing up as a kid that, that you'd be doing this type of thing, like the Crown? Well, I mean, yeah, specifically because it is such a it's such a particular thing, and it's now an institution. Mm. No, not really. I mean, I, I came from yeah. My my mum was quite actively uh, didn't really like the royal family. It was kind of mm-hmm. against that, and so would you know actively not have the the Queen's speech on on Christmas Day and stuff. So they weren't a big part of my life. I until I came to do the show. I'd never really read much about them or taken much interest. Um, so, yeah, it was a quick learning curve and interesting to, yeah, to kind of look at them and, and read around their lives. And, you know, well, that's what's interesting about acting full stop is that, you know, most things when you start to dig around, dig around in it are always, there's always things to, that are interesting and surprising and uh, worth uh, worth looking at about most people's lives you know whatever you think about them politically or for sure yeah i find that you kind of as an actor you sort of learn a lot about a very specific niche little topic and then you learn a lot about another thing that's completely unrelated so you have these pockets of knowledge quizzes good for quizzes sometimes (laughs) sometimes if you get the right subject just happen to come up then it's like (laughs) great this is really useful for me Tobias Menzies there uh, following Casey J. Andrews and the that is the last clip of this show. Um, what a great roundup we've had. I've just been sitting back here listening to all those little bits and remembering sitting talking to those people and watching their performances. I mean, as you may or may not know or you may have gathered from the beginning of the clip, Tobias performed White Rabbit, Red Rabbit and uh, he had never seen the script or didn't know anything about it before he walked on stage. So... Um, a pretty a pretty unique experience in theatre, both as an audience member and as a performer, as you can imagine. Um, quite amazing stuff, and just to just the chance to talk to someone um, of that caliber and at that stage in his career, amazing, amazing stuff, and beautiful to talk to Casey G. Andrews. Um, such a personal uh, connection she has to the story that she's telling or to to the piece that she's performing. Um, it's so so deeply personal in so many ways as our as our clip explains that it feels like it's pretty special to be sitting there to, you know to to experience that with or to celebrate that um 
artistic moment with her. So yes, how wonderful to spend time with you over the last couple of weeks um, a little bit differently than usual, just experiencing again some of the, the great moments we've had on the show. And now I'm going to take a little break of a few weeks. Um, I've not set an exact date of when we're coming back, but let's call that the end of Series 1, shall we? 201 episodes, uh, and we'll call that Series 1, and we'll come back stronger than ever with some great new guests, which some of which we've already recorded and we're ready to go. Um, but we're going to record some more during the break, and we'll come back to you with what we're calling Series 2 of Putting It Together. So thanks very much for your support over this first series, this first three and a half years. Uh, and if you want to support the show uh, financially, you can do it, and it is greatly appreciated as we do run at a loss, as I've told you. So please do go to puttingittogethercast.com and click on Donate. You can do that in any amount, large or small, regularly or on a one-off basis. It's up to you. So follow us on social media, Pod, and go to puttingittogethercast.com and click on Donate to support the show. We'll be in touch very soon with details of when we're coming back for Series 2. But in the meantime, thanks very much for joining me for 201 episodes. Be sure to check out the archive. All 201 episodes, including this one, of course, are there for you to enjoy completely free whenever you'd like on all major podcast platforms. So thanks very much for being part of this journey and I'll see you in a few weeks. As I always say, cheerio now.